0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. It's
1: hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favourite
2: McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
1: He'd seen so many awful things that it possibly had turned him into something he wasn't really naturally like before the battle started.
3: That was Hugh Savag Montefury de describing the impact of the Battle of the Somme on those who fought it.
2: And when you hear a barrage of shells in Tommy's, your ears are actually going back a hundred years to exactly the noises that your grandparents would have
3: heard. And that was Jonathan Ruffle talking about the making of the BBC First World War radio drama, Tommy's. You're listening to the History Extra podcast, from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our fifth podcast of June 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Tomorrow, the 1st of July, marks the centenary of the start of the Battle of the Somme, which for many people, in Britain at least, is the defining clash of the First World War. The opening day was the bloodiest in the history of the British Army, and over the course of the battle's four months, hundreds of thousands would lose their lives on both sides. We've decided to make this week's podcast a Somme special. The first person we're going to hear from is Hugh Sabag afury an acclaimed author and historian, whose most recent book is entitled Somme Into the Breach. I spoke to him a little while back to get his perspective on this pivotal and controversial battle. Quite a number of books have already been written about the Somme. How do you feel that yours is going to add to the historical conversation about the battle?
1: The the main focus of the book is about overturning the general perception about the Battle of the Somme, because most people, when they think of the Battle of the Somme, they think about it in terms of, you know, people getting mired in the trenches and people getting mowed down when they ran towards the German machine guns, and there was terrible slaughter and terrible failure. But in fact, there were lots of actions during the whole Somme battle when the attackers were relatively successful. So, as an individual attack, some, some of the attacks were a success. And that rather overturns what most people perceive as being the general picture on the Somme. Of course, they didn't break through overall. It was a failure. But the actual content of the individual battles is very different to what a lot of people think. And that's when they, when they read the book, they might find they're quite surprised at seeing how there were successes as well as overall failure.
3: So why do you think it is that we have this picture now as a Somme as being this terrible, futile tragedy?
1: I suppose it's because we didn't, we didn't really break through overall. So people regard it as a big lump of, of battle that's very hard to get to grips with. And what I've tried to do in the book is to maybe kind of separate each, each of the famous actions where there was testimony available to try and show people they can look at the battle that I'm writing about in each chapter as an individual action It hasn't been done before in that way. I think people in the past have rather tended to lump everything together. And so I think by looking at individual cases on the front line, something different has come out.
3: I'd be interested to know what your own view of the song was before you began researching the battle.
1: I didn't really understand it before I began researching it. It's because when when you read the books, many of them write about repeated actions that all sound very similar. And so you come out of it in a way, not really seeing the wood for the trees. And I just feel by by getting right down to the worm's eye level, you sometimes get a better picture overall, strangely enough, because it's slightly paradoxical. You normally expect to look at the whole battle and understand the whole strategy. But it seems that when you read some books, you never come out with that feeling that you've come to grips with the whole strategy. You just feel you don't really know what happened by the time you get to the end of them. I'm hoping when you read mine, at least you'll find, you'll understand more of what they were up against.
3: So you mentioned that many of the individual actions within the battle were actually successful from a, a British, um, a French point of view. So why, in your view, was the overall battle not a success then? Because
1: it was possible in those days to, once someone broke through the line, unless unless the attacker was very, very quick It was possible to kind of seal up the breach by having a defensive line further back. And the problem, the great problem during 1916 was communications were particularly bad. They were using pigeons, believe it or not, at this time. And and, and runners were a major part of the communication. And so when you look at any particular action, you find frustratingly, there might be a breakthrough, but but it's very hard for the general behind the line to exploit it.
3: And so somebody who comes comes in with a huge amount of criticism nowadays for the battle, certainly in some quarters, is Douglas Haig. What do you see as his role? And do you think that the criticism levelled at him is is fair or unfair?
1: I've gone to a great length in looking at the first day of the Somme, the first July nineteen sixteen, to show how he was. Culpable. One of the most interesting things was there was, was a kind of psychological battle going on at the top of the high command, the British high command, between him, who was the commander-in-chief, and General Rawlinson, Henry Rawlinson, who was the commander of the fourth army, the, the main army in charge on the Somme. And there was this big problem that uh, Rawlinson had made, a, had made a terrible mistake in one of the earlier battles back in 1915 at Neu-Chapelle. And as a result, he he was about to be sacked after that battle. Haig saved him. And as a result of that, he felt, it seems, unable to contest Haig's plan for the Somme battle. And Haig's plan was very unrealistic. And even at the time, it would have been possible to say it it was really an accident waiting to happen. Rawlinson could see that, it seems. But he didn't deny his commander-in-chief. He just said he didn't agree with it, but then went along with it. He could have threatened to resign over what Haig was asking.
3: And so do you have some sympathy then with this famous line that British Army in the Somme was a uh, lions led by donkeys?
1: That's a very simplistic way of putting it. But Haig was very... Was, he, he didn't use his common sense, it seems. And Rawlinson didn't back his common sense, which he had.
3: And what do you see as particularly wrong in Haig's strategy for that opening day, which we know was the bloodiest day in the history of the British Army?
1: Well, the great problem was that it was very hard in those days to attack a line that was a long way back from your your own front line. And Haig wanted to attack not just the the German front line, but also the second line as well. And Rawlinson realised that that was very difficult. He had this strategy he nicknamed bite and hold, because he realized that it was very hard to get the artillery to hit the second line which was a long way sometimes you know over 4000 yards away from the british front line the problem was that the german second line was often you couldn't see it from the from the front line because it was on the opposite side of a of a kind of incline or hill and so The guns were firing blind. And in any case, the guns in those days weren't particularly accurate. But it would have helped a lot if they could have seen what they were firing at. It would also have helped a lot if they were nearer, because they were even more inaccurate, as you can understand, if they were a long way away.
3: The first day of the Somme clearly gets a huge amount of attention, understandably so. But do you think there's a danger that this might overshadow the rest of what was a very lengthy battle?
1: Well, it does overshadow it, because that was the one great chance the British had of preparing and attacking in their own time with everything that they wanted at their fingertips. So it was a great chance lost. And some people, people like Churchill, thought that it would be much better if once they'd failed, would have been to kind of admit defeat or admit it was a draw and then go and attack somewhere else and use the lessons learned to attack in a more efficient way. And there's a lot to be said for what Churchill said in in this particular case.
3: So, would you see the eventual outcome of the battle by the time it did eventually fizzle out? Would you say that was it be a draw? Would it even be a German victory?
1: Well, you could say it was a German victory in the sense that, with very limited arms, very limited number of men, they had actually stopped the British breaking through. But on the other hand, a lot of their generals would have said the German army was effectively not quite a broken reed, but but it was it was so damaged that it would never be as efficient again. They'd lost so many men, so many officers that they never again had the chance to dominate the battlefield as they had during the early years of the war.
3: For the book, I know you've spent a lot of time looking at the personal recollections of the battle from people who, who were involved in it. What view did you get from them of what it was actually like to take part in this battle?
1: There's one word that comes up quite a lot, and you'll not be surprised, to you know it's, it's hell. I mean, a lot of, lot of them, would, as they came back, said, it's just hell. Their accounts give a sense that you're treading into a world which is, which is very similar to the kind of world inhabited by prisoners during the Holocaust in concentration camps. I mean, people are describing how they're walking on bodies, bodies' arms and legs are sticking out from every, every trench as they pass by. As they walk down the trench, they are feeling a spongy feeling underneath, underfoot, and they suddenly realise that they're walking on dead bodies that have been buried before they arrived. It's a horrific, kind of Dante-esque, hellish scene which one gets over and over again. It's it's, it's quite amazing how people managed to survive in these terrible conditions.
3: Did the soldiers themselves, did they see at the time that this was worse than other actions they'd been involved in?
1: A lot of them would say, this is the worst thing we've ever been involved in. One interesting thing I noticed was was the fact that people were affected psychologically very badly. And this, this applied not just to the people at the bottom People who are walking over the corpses, but also the generals themselves, or, or the colonels who were involved. I mean, there's one colonel who was involved in one of the famous actions on the first day at a place called Thiebval, a man called Colonel Cruzier. And he has this situation where he starts off as a normal officer, and he gradually disintegrates. He, he, he becomes very, very fierce to his own men possibly as a result of what he's been seeing, people being blown up all around him. And at one point, he summons his men to watch an execution. One of his men had run away. And he, he kind of turns it into a kind of show. And I just felt, rather than just saying, oh, he's an awful butcher, like some of the generals, I just felt slight sympathy for him. I just felt he'd seen so many awful things that it possibly had turned him into something he wasn't really naturally like before the battle started. And so people who write from their armchairs, the generals were butchers or the colonels were butchers, I think they might stop and think, you know, how they might have reacted if, if they'd been subjected to such terrible sights and smells and experiences.
3: From the, the things you've read that some of the soldiers have written, did they feel that they were doing something important or did they share the later view that this was quite a futile battle?
1: Well, it is quite incredible that many of the soldiers, when they're writing their last letters before battle, they would often say, if I die, well, it's been the most glorious death, and I, I, wouldn't, I would repeat it again, and I, I, I'm a total patriot. I mean, the, the, that was the kind of feeling you got from the majority. Obviously, there were, there were some people who didn't share that view, but the majority were surprisingly upbeat and pro the battle.
3: And I believe you've also looked at some German accounts. How did it feel for them to defend the Battle of the Somme?
1: They were horrified by the kind of experiences they were put through. The shelling that they had to withstand at the beginning was again described by them as hell. Again and again in their accounts, you hear this. And you hear accounts of how one man in particular, one officer in particular, described how he had to kind of tie people down or hold them down when they were trying to run away because the shelling was getting too much for them. And you, you get a sense from this account, which he gave, of the horror they felt that they were just being bombarded to hell and they were not being defended by their own side.
3: And one aspect of the Somme that I understand you highlight in your book is the treatment of German prisoners. Could you perhaps tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Throughout the book, there is this feeling that whenever whenever you get a, a very frank account, you hear about prisoners being, German prisoners being just literally shot after an action. You get the feeling that it's not because necessarily the British are vitriolic towards their enemy. It seems it's just because they don't want to be encumbered by German prisoners, given the difficulties of, of carrying on the attack.
3: And so these executions of prisoners, will this have been? against the rules of the British Army, or would this have been kind of encouraged from higher up?
1: Well, it's against the rules of the British Army, but it seems to have been... It's a very strange thing, because in in some New Zealand accounts, you get this account of this very robust, red-haired Scottish major who went round lecturing to all the New Zealand soldiers again and again. He went to each unit, and they all describe how he kind of said... We don't want prisoners. Prisoners are a nuisance. They eat our food. The only good German is a dead German. And so it's not surprising after things like that. And the lecture went on to kind of liken the Germans to kind of waiters. And then the talk would end saying something like the best end for them is is you, you get out your knife in your pocket stab them in the eye and that's the end of a dirty sleazy German waiter because obviously he, he portrayed them as waiters who'd been working in London before the war and this man almost described the Germans as undermensch you know kind of under underlings people who didn't matter if you if you murdered them. and so it wasn't that all well, that surprising after hearing that when you hear that the New Zealanders, and you can't think of a more civilised nation than, the, than New Zealand, that they actually ran amok and just killed their prisoners, and, and they describe it without trying to hide it.
3: Do you think that, that aspect of the story is perhaps not very well known, and might, might this prove quite controversial?
1: Yes, well, particularly as, as in the past, it's always been thought of as, as being the Germans who are playing dirty. And there are, there are examples of Germans doing it as well. There's one case in the Australian archives... They've got this marvellous series of files called the Red Cross Missing and Wounded Person Files. And in these files, for example, you hear about one one particular 20-year-old soldier. His family were looking for him after, the, after he went missing. And the report from back from one of his comrades in the Red Cross Files says that uh, he was seen, after the battle, he was seen captured in an in a enemy trench. And then the German came up to him and said, found out that he was a machine gunner. And then the German said, well, I, I know how to deal with people like you. And he got out his pistol or rifle and shot him twice, once in the head and once in the chest. And that was the end of him.
3: Are there any other new areas of the battle that you've explored that you don't think have been covered that much in previous works?
1: In previous works, no one really has ex- explored the Australian files in the way I did. In the files, there are fascinating accounts, heartbreaking accounts of how the parents of soldiers who went missing looked for their loved ones. And for example, there's one kind of case which is so like the film Saving Private Ryan, Spielberg's Hollywood movie. There are four brothers in a particular battle called the Potter family from near Adelaide. And three of them get killed on the same day in the same battle. And then the fourth one afterwards, some some months later, finds the remains of one of the brothers lying beside his gas mask, like a skeleton of him. And then he, he 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 petitions the Australian government to allow him to stay at home with his parents because he's the last he's the last of the sons who can look after them. And the Australian government says he must be recalled and never sent to fight again. So that's just one example of the kind of things that came clear from looking at these Australian files, and there are lots of other very moving stories. I mean, for example, there was a guy called Len Wadsley, who was a 26-year-old Australian, and he had an equally bloody end to the Potters. He he was seen, called the Red Cross Files report that he was seen lying with his head blown off near the German lines. But it's his letters that are so kind of down to earth that they are they are moving. He, uh, when he goes to war, for example, he writes, Now, Dad, don't be downhearted. It's up to me to go if I can do any good. I have every confidence in coming through all right. And then when he's in Melbourne training, he, he talks about how he misses the fruit trees, and he missed his brother Ted's fiancé's first visit to the farm. And he and he writes, he writes to her saying, I don't know whether to congratulate you or not, because if you knew Ted as I do, all you would want would be my sympathy. I wish I'd been at home to give you a right royal welcome and to rub your face with raspberries and thus inaugurate you as one of the family. And you get to know him but from these very mundane letters. And then when he gets to France, things turn a bit darker and he and he forecasts that he's gonna die. In the in the battle, the day before the battle, on the third of September, and then he writes this letter. And he says, "Dear everybody at home, if you receive this, I will by then have passed to the great beyond. We are just preparing to go in on a fairly large stunt, which may be the end of a good many of us, and I may be one of the number. Well, I leave myself in the hands of the Almighty and trust Him absolutely. You may depend on it. I've done my job, and you'll have no need to be ashamed of me. I would have liked to have got back again." But it was not meant that I should. Never mind, girls. There'll be someone else to take my place. Goodbye, Dad. Goodbye, girls. Let the rest of the family know I think of you all and hope to meet you all again later on. Tis rotten having to write this. But c'est la guerre. Well, goodbye again to you all from your son and bro, Len. And that's just, just an example of some of the some of the kind of letters that just one man wrote. And there are thousands of these letters in these files. And they all tell a kind of story of, of someone who's loved by their family and lost.
3: Having written this book, do you think the Somme deserves its current status as, as being the most terrible battle of the First World War and perhaps any battle, you know, in the twentieth century that Britain was involved in? Funnily enough,
1: in the olden days, before the nineteen sixties, before the lions and donkeys theories came in, Passchendaele was the battle everyone, everyone talked about as being the worst. So it's, it's a slight kind of matter of um, emphasis. I think Passchendaele was probably equally bad. The so Somme now is the battle everyone talks about, everyone knows about, possibly because that's the, that's the way it's taught at school. But uh, I think it was just one of many battles, and it, and it went on for a long time.
3: That was Hugh Sir Bagmont Fury. Somme, Into the Breach, is out now in the UK, published by Viking and in the U.S. it's due to be published in August by Belknap. If you want to read more about the Battle of the Somme, then you might like to check out our July edition, which is a Somme special. Inside the magazine, we explore this battle from the British and German viewpoints, as well as telling the stories of ordinary soldiers who fought there. Also in this month's edition, there are articles on the Anglo-Saxon king Athelstan and the 17th century Monmouth rebellion. Plus, we reveal the results of our 2016 History Hot 100. You can get hold of our July issue now in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new UK subscribers. You can get your first five issues for just £1 each. Visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash history magazine to find out more details and take advantage of this offer. You'll need to quote HTP 205.
2: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard
3: about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed and now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor emma mason
0: The Duke and Duchess of Cambridge will join several heads of state and 10,000 spectators in northern France to mark the 100th anniversary of the Battle of the Somme on Friday. A vigil service will take place at the Teapval Memorial, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission Memorial to the Missing. The memorial bears the names of more than 72,000 men who died on the Somme and have no known grave. The Prince of Wales and Duchess of Cornwall will also attend the vigil which will be broadcast live on BBC One on Friday morning. Commemorations will begin on Thursday evening at Westminster Abbey, where the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh will lead the nation's remembrance at the grave of the unknown warrior. The four and a half month Battle of the Somme, which began on the 1st of July 1916, was one of the bloodiest clashes of the First World War. It claimed the lives of more than 127,000 British soldiers with more than 57,000 British casualties on the first day alone. Of these 57,000 casualties, more than 19,000 died. In other news, the bedroom in which Charles Darwin died in 1882 has been recreated and is due to open to the public. English Heritage has drawn upon family letters, descriptions from the time and research into mid-Victorian interior design to closely match the original appearance of the room at Down House, Kent, in the late 1850s. Down House was home to Darwin and his family for 40 years, and it was there that he worked on his most famous books, including On the Origin of Species. Visitors will now be able to see the room in which Darwin died in 1882. The room was dismantled and dispersed more than 100 years ago. English Heritage curator Sarah Moulden said... Darwin may have travelled the world, but Down House is where he did his thinking and writing. Darwin's bedroom and its recreation reveal a more personal side to the great scientist. We want people to flick through the novels that Emma read aloud to Charles, we want them to try on nightclothes in the closet next door, and we want them to look out of the bay window onto the extensive garden laboratory, just as he once did. Meanwhile, a country estate owned by the family of former Prime Minister William Gladstone has gone on sale for more than 9 million pounds. The 6,000-acre Fask estate, near Fettercairn in Aberdeenshire, includes the recently renovated six-bedroom Balbengo Castle, plus an additional 32 smaller houses, cottages and outbuildings. Gladstone often visited the estate after it was bought by his family in 1829. The estate remained in the family for generations but is now being put on the market by Gladstone's great-great-grandson, Charles. It is available as 28 individual lots or as a whole for offers of more than £9.3 million. Gladstone served as Liberal Prime Minister four times between 1868 and 1894. He was the oldest ever Prime Minister when he finally resigned at the age of 84.
3: Before our next interview... Here's a reminder that tickets for this year's History Weekend Festivals are currently on sale. The events are taking place in Winchester from the 7th to 9th of October and in York from the 18th to 20th of November. The speakers include some of the biggest names in British popular history, including Michael Wood, Susanna Lipscomb, Anthony Beaver, Simon Sebag montefiore and Janina Ramirez. You can find out more details and purchase tickets now at historyweekend.com. Now, throughout the First World War centenary, BBC Radio 4 are running a drama series called Tommy's, which follows the events of the war in real time a century on. Today, the 30th of June, the latest episode is released, telling the story of the eve of the Battle of the Somme. It seemed like a good time to find out more about the making of this meticulously researched series, and so I caught up with its creator, the writer and producer Jonathan Ruffle. I began by asking him to explain the original inspiration for Tommies.
2: Well, the original inspiration for a lot of people in uh, Britain is the idea that grandparents actually fought in the First World War. And I'd had no idea um, about life in the trenches whatsoever, except for one thing, and that is on a day off my great-uncle, had gone up the line to see my grandfather before an attack. And that, for me at least, the idea that people on days off went up and down the British front line to find people and knew where they were, demolished that idea of a harmonica playing corporal and an officer who was straight out of public school with bum fluff, standing for four and a half years, waist deep in a trench full of water, going absolutely nowhere. It suddenly made the the whole trench system into a community of real, living, breathing people. And simultaneously, this whole idea coalesced at the point when we just pulled out of Iraq. And I realized that we'd been in Iraq for longer than the Second World War. And I thought to myself, that's remarkable. Because I've lived through this conflict, I have a totally different perception of it. What if we did the First World War in real time? In other words, somebody looks at that radio on the windowsill in the kitchen two years down the, down the line of programs and thinks, hang on a minute, I remember these guys. They were geographically near here two years ago. And we hadn't had the baby We hadn't had bought the new car. We were in the old house. You know, in other words, because time passes in our lives, if we could put that changing of time, that passage of time back into what sits there, the First World War, as a sort of sepia, still photograph, or jerky, black and white photograph, if we could change that, if we could put time back into that, what different stories would that tell us about the First World War?
3: And so how did you go about doing the research for this series and what kind of challenges did you face in that? I'm the
2: kind of man who worries if there's a hyphen in anal retentive. I take my historical research extremely seriously. And an asset I knew was out there and I so wanted to make use of were the war diaries and memoirs of the men who fought in the front line. And I was very keen that we took the battle down to where my grandfather and my great-uncle had fought, in other words, in those front line trenches. So I was very interested in going to the National Archives and actually looking at the day-to-day grind and the day-to-day operational travails of ordinary soldiers. I'm sure you know of the idea of the police procedural which is a kind of drama where where they have problems with overtime. I mean, the bill's a perfect example, or the wire's a perfect example. You know, they have problems with management. They have problems with the kit that keeps falling apart. They can't get overtime, blah, blah, blah. It's the daily grind. And I wanted to try and make a war procedural, a drama that's actually about the daily living of a war, not, you know, come on boys, let's storm the guns of Navarone. You know, wonderful film though that is. That is is not about anybody's realistic experience of a war on a day to day basis.
3: Following on from that, how important do you feel that historical accuracy is to the series and do you ever compromise it for dramatic reasons?
2: What we do, um, in a way, uh, is, is have a completely comprehensive factual basis for any given day. You look at the 30th of June 2016, which, of course, is the anniversary date of the 30th of June 1916, the day before the first day of the Battle of the Somme. Every single event that we refer to on that day actually happened. It happened in the places we said it happened, and it happens um, to the units that we say it happens to. Every single detail is absolutely accurate. Now, if you recall that song um, by the Jungle Brothers, where they talk about walking through the rain, but you don't get wet, okay, our characters move within that totally factual framework, but they themselves are actually fictional. And often you find that there are events that are completely unexplained um, in the war diaries. You know, somebody let this barrage balloon go by mistake. Well, you'll find it's our guys who actually did that, because I've inserted fictional people into a totally realistic background. And I would rather lose a fact rather than distort a fact, because I'm going to be blunt with you here, Rob, 750,000 blokes died. And the idea that I'm going to cock my leg on their memorial um, is just totally out of the question. You know, this is an opportunity to memorialize these blokes, and I'm not going to waste that by going, ah, nah, it doesn't matter, because that's just not the way I'm made.
3: So, obviously, you've, you've got the sources for some of the events that happened. How do you go about creating the language of how people spoke 100 years ago?
2: The war diaries actually are incredibly helpful on this very point. You'd think they'd be slightly more formal, but actually they're not. They're very often, you know, they're a cha- I mean, pretty obviously there are chatty war diaries and then they're incredibly dry ones. But you do pick up a lot of the nomenclature, the, the words they actually use to describe certain incidents. As for the rhythm and the way that people speak, that's actually considerably more difficult. And for that, you have to go to memoirs. And there are a particular set of memoirs that are extraordinarily good, that are head and shoulders above the others. I would recommend, for example, The War the Infantry Knew by the Second Royal Welsh Fusiliers, Dr. Dr. Dunn. And in that book, his, his language and his attitude towards frontline soldiering, for example, they don't mind about generals, they don't give a monkeys about generals, and they don't give a monkeys about the people that the, the company commanders they work with. The people they don't like are all the middle, <laughs> the middle management of the army, as it were. We're back to my war procedural point. But those are the kind of books Sidney Rogerson's books about the Somme. Um, these are the kind of books that take you into that world, and then, of course, letters because letters give you an absolutely wonderful insight. We've got a lot of characters in our a drama who are from the British Indian Army. And it is a remarkable fact that the British, nervous about how the Indian Army, um, the Indian members of that army, were, were, were communicating back to, obviously, British Empire India at that time. They actually copied every single letter for security purposes before they, they mailed on the, the original back, back to India. So that means that there is actually the entire archive of that entire correspondence available to us to see how they phrased an incident how they talked about the cold how they talked about the general direction of the war how they talked about their cultural caste and religious differences and how they talked about how they bonded how they got on what they were learning how they felt about the french this is the sort of the meat and drink if you're a good student of those letters and then you're a good student of tommy's the dialogue in tommy's you'll begin to see distinct similarities.
3: On a similar point, how do you ensure the sound effects are realistic? For example, the sound of certain explosives going off.
2: Well, I decided that the the BBC sound effects library is a truly wonderful thing, but it doesn't obviously have any First World War recordings of shelling. Although there are recordings of First World War shelling, they are of course in mono and they're incredibly scratchy and for our purposes unusable. So I actually went over to France and recorded the exploding of shells that had lain unexploded for a hundred years. They're found in what the French farmers call the iron harvest. They put them to the side of the road and I was with the bomb disposal guys who pick those shells up off the side of the road they take them to a quarry uh, down near Verdun and they blow these things up and they of course know by sight uh, a German whizbang or a British 18 pounder shell and they were able to blow these up singly for me using little packs of semtex and we recorded each of those independently and when you hear a barrage of shells uh, in Tommy's your ears are actually going back a hundred years to exactly the noises that your grandparents would have heard.
3: And what was that like for you to actually be there and and hear these these explosions that people hadn't heard for 100 years?
2: A deeply emotional experience, actually. Broadcasting, recording, drama, these lives I've lived have taken me to incredible places and to actually be there. Of course, course, it's interesting you should mention, of course, the tension for us was, is is this shell going to explode? Because some of them just shatter. You see, when you blow the SMTEX, it just shatters, and it doesn't make the bang that you want. So, of course, you're sitting there in a in a strange quandary. You're wanting to hear this amazingly violent noise of this shell explode, and part of you, part of you, you know, the, the slightly more peaceful part of me, you know, be quite glad if all this just just shattered. But of course, no. When it goes, it, that sound goes straight through you. It's an incredibly powerful, amazingly violent noise.
3: There are a lot of historical controversies surrounding the First World War. Does Tommy's attempt to engage with any of those?
2: Well, I think what we're trying to do is to show that if you're on the front line, those controversies uh, tend to filter down a little bit. But we've actually opened up some of our own controversies. For example, because of researching in the archives, I managed to find that uh, during late 1915, the British were trading with the Germans. They were trading with their enemy. A year into the war, they were trading rubber to buy German binoculars, telescopes, and gun sights. This is trading with the enemy during the First World War to to give the enemy tools with which to kill our soldiers and buying off them tools to kill their soldiers. So business always flourishes. It doesn't matter if you've got a war or not. Next year, for example, in 1917, 2017, we'll be doing a story about the coastal attack that uh, was actually cancelled in 1917, which was the biggest and boldest idea of the First World War. The idea that we would actually go round the mighty wall of German trenches and in Invade, uh, down through the Belgian coast behind the German lines. We're also going to cover the incredibly culturally uncomfortable stories of the uh, British army effectively running away on the 21st of March 1918. And only a very few days later, General Haig, uh, drawing the army's attention to the fact that unless they stood with their backs to the wall, we would actually lose the First World War. Now, not many people think March 1918, we nearly lost the First World War. And similarly, Not many people know that from uh, the 8th of August 1918, the British Army had its longest period of continuous victories. That gets ironed out of the story because, of course, all our soldiers are now cast as victims, which is not how they saw themselves. But if you want to really look at a myth being knocked down and you want a real story being readdressed, just take the example of the 30th of June, 1916, 30th of June, 2016, this episode at the moment, which is about a man, an ordinary man, driven just by the social pressures he was under on that day. He fatally picked up a telephone and he rang through a message that should have been passed by a runner. The Germans were highly proficient at listening to messages. And so when they heard that message emanating from the telephone lines, all they had to do was to pass that message up and down the line. And in those dugouts, the Germans, one last clean of their rifles, one last swig of the bottled water because they have been trapped down there on tin food for about six or seven days. That's all the warning they needed. They literally stood at the bottom of the steps ready to rush up. And I think we all know what happens at 7.30 on the morning of the 1st of July, 1916, the first day of the Battle of the Somme, as our lads got out of the trenches and went forward. What did they meet? They met these German machine gunners tipped off by this phone call, ready to scythe them down as they came across the front
3: the story of this phone call, is that known before, or is this something that's come fresh from your research?
2: Well, there's two answers to that question. The first is it is known. In fact, you could argue it's known in the most obvious place of all. It's it's in one of the official histories of the British Army. But it's also a well-known fact that if you want to hide anything, hide it in the official history, because no one's actually probably going to read it. But yes, it's clearly in there, and you think to yourself, right, well, this story, which then does get reported in, you know, the the Martin Middlebrook books, the Lynn MacDonald books, it, however, is not part of the the popular story of the first day of the Battle of the Somme. I'm not saying anybody's ever tried to hide it, but I would say no one's ever tried to promote it. But what I found uncomfortable, and you referred earlier to being uh, quite keen on my research, I was a little bit worried that everybody was just quoting that official history. So what I did was I thought, right, my normal standard for a historical fact is two contemporary sources and two official sources. Okay, I've got one official source written 20 years after the event but an army officer turned historian what i now need to do is i need to see if i can find evidence for this actually at the time of the incident and my digging, because so what, of course, I wanted to do was find the name of the guy who did it. And if I was going to go around even selecting any unit and saying it was these guys who did that, I wanted to hone it down. I wanted to get it as close as possible to a specific geographical area that meant that the German listening sets would have actually heard, could only have heard, somebody from that brigade or that division. And briefly, and in, but into some detail here, when the 179th Tunnelling Company went forward on the 4th of July, they found, because they were tunnelers. they went into the German tunnel system and they discovered a listening room. And I quote, they found copies of British signal messages recorded by the Germans. And on the 5th of July, Charteris, who was Haig's chief intelligence officer and McDonough, who was head of GHQ intelligence, they exchanged letters in which one of them said, among other things in the loot was a secret box and showed beyond all doubt the Germans are making use of their apparatus for overhearing our telephone messages and are getting news of practically all our intentions. I thought to myself, right, that's two sources which are actually in the location, on the day, really close to the event, who do prove that there were listening sets there. And then the thing that aced this for me, published in 1939, were the memoirs of Freiherr von General Leutnant Freiherr von Soden, who was the commanding officer of the 26th Reserve Division, obviously the German officer in the opposite trench. And he said, the Maritz station near Cantalmaison made up for the deficiency of our intelligence when it intercepted an order from 34th Division, which made it quite clear the offensive was about to begin. Now, that clearly puts the listening device in La Contalmaison. that put it opposite the 102nd Brigade, Tyneside Scottish. And so I finally felt if I was going to say that somebody in the British Army tipped off the Germans, we actually had the authority to be able to say it was somebody from that Unit And our character, who we've been with for the last month in our real-time Tommy's drama, he is a character in the 102nd Brigade Tyneside Scottish.
3: So just to be clear, when we say he tipped off the Germans, it was not intentional. No, it's not intentional, and it's a
2: completely human error. If there is something to which um, Tommy's is always deeply sympathetic, it's about uh, individuals. And the blunders that we make, you and I have pressed send on the wrong email. Now, that's our errors. They don't account to diddly squat. But if you make an error, if you pick up a telephone and you send this message on that night when it should have gone forward by hand, when that man put that phone down, I absolutely dread to think what went through his mind. Because somewhere in the back of his mind, he must have thought, oh, what on earth have I done? Now, because we're a drama... We know who that guy is because we've got, a, we've got a fictional character who is that guy. He is 2nd Lieutenant Joseph Gascoigne of the Tyneside Scottish. Now, he's going to survive that attack. And when we rejoin him in late 1916, early 1917 episodes, we are going to rejoin a man who knows that just through a fleeting error, a fit of pique, a little flash of anger, a man who has made a mistake that very possibly killed thousands of his
3: colleagues. More generally, how have you framed the episode around the summer? What kind of tone and mood have you given it?
2: That's an extraordinarily good question. It actually strikes at the heart of really what Tommy's is about. We are not a strategic drama about um, General Haig with a vast arrow on a map. We are about... What actually happens if you're a man standing on a road, a new-built road in the Somme with stone brought over from Cornwall, standing perhaps next door to a light railway which they've actually built to supply ammunition and and stores up to the front line. You're perhaps a soldier standing behind a Hessian screen to conceal cavalry going forward. Perhaps you're one of the men in one of the world's longest toilet queues because they literally had to build toilet after toilet so that the men waiting to go over, over 100,000 men waiting to go over, could actually go to the loo. You know, you're looking at an absolutely worked out, logistical, staff operation of absolutely massive proportions. And if you'd been on the ground on that day and there was a seven-day bombardment, you must have stood there and you must have thought, well... I wouldn't want to be under that lot and just look at the resources that have been put behind me on the front line. Now, there's lots of people who go, well, large proportion of the shells were duds. Maybe that too much information had gone over to the Germans. Um, you know, all these bigger thoughts. But if you were on the ground and that is where Tommy's is, your conviction that this was going to work must have been extraordinarily high.
3: Through researching this battle, have you come to any kind of view about the futility or not of the Somme, which is one of the big historical debates?
2: No, I think I think it's a great historical debate and I hope it carries on. But my own personal take on this was always to see for a small group of men how you have to, in a way, uh, imagine a, a vast inverted pyramid and our guys are right at the bottom of that pyramid and on top of them is all the, the bigger issues of the Somme. What I wanted to look at here was a group of men who are part of the task of going forward to attack a deeply entrenched position. They couldn't go round it. They couldn't go over it. They had to go straight forward and go into it. And my personal take on this is possibly similar to a lot of revisionist historians in that if you look at the actual problem they were trying to tackle, the timescale they had to do it in, and the pressures that were put on them to achieve it in ground, they personally wouldn't have chosen part of you has to be extremely admiring of the execution of the operation i think i think throughout history we've known that the the individual courage and resilience of the individual soldier was never in doubt but i think we have to these days look at If you're tasked to do A, you cannot suddenly do Z, you very probably have to do B, because that's actually the the opportunity that's left open to you, incredibly limited. And the example I'd use for this is incredibly simple. You know, deep down, everybody would have waited till 1924 to attack if they, you know, if they wanted to be utterly prepared. I mean, you look at the Second World War, famously, Montgomery delays the Battle of El Alamein, because, of course, he'd fought in the First World War, and he'd seen um, half cooked operations all the time in the first world war in the second world war he was absolutely determined that that key victory was going to be a victory so he waited until he had the sledgehammer force to better achieve it still an incredibly close run thing because all battles are but you cannot unfortunately to win a battle wait around until such time as you have overwhelming force
3: in tom is how far are you going to take the story of the somme
2: Well, I'm glad you asked me that because I actually have just come from doing research on the 141st day of the Battle of the Somme, which is the 18th of November. Um, As we've been discussing, Tommy's is a real-time drama. We'll be on the air. We're coming back for the late uh, 1916-2016 series. We're going to be back for the 18th of November, which is the official last day of the Battle of the Somme. Some of our characters will, I can't tell you which ones, will survive the first day of the Battle of the Somme and will have fought for 141 days. I don't know about you, but I've always thought, the Battle of the Somme is just one day, but it isn't. It's 141 days, and I think that one of the genius things about Tom is, is we're there for the first day, and we're also there for the last day. Just ask yourself these questions. It's the last day of the Battle of the Somme. What sort of orders do you give? What are you trying to achieve? It's way past bonfire night, you know, it's nearly Christmas. Perhaps, you know, I mean, they had to attack in the dark at ten past six in the morning on the 18th of November. How many more lives are we going to spend now, and why 141 days after that first attack because a lot of the jumping off points for that attack were mere yards from the jumping off points for that first attack 141 days previously.
3: Okay Jonathan, I think I've been through the questions I had to ask you. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about that we didn't touch on at all?
2: Um, I'm very glad we touched on the international nature of uh, Tommy's because I'm really proud of that story. I can remember standing in the gate at uh, Ypres men in gate and looking up during one of those incredibly moving evening uh, services they hold there and there's the trumpeter blowing the last post and and it's incredibly moving and looking up and seeing the names of the Sepoys of the British Indian Army and I'm really pleased we've told told their story we're also going to tell the story of the African soldiers uh, because we're going to Africa we're going to tell the story the British West Indian Army story the Fijians the Chinese the you know the other people who came and helped us uh, on the on the Western Front. We're also going to tell the story of how the war went in Greece, Africa, Iraq, because, of course, we fought in Iraq throughout the First World War. It was called Mesopotamia then. India, Russia, Serbia, Turkey. Tommy's goes all around the world because, you know, the clues in the title, you know, it was the first world war. And I think, once again, we're slightly stuck in that sepia picture of the lads in the trench. And that's not doing the First World War any favours at all because that's removing... One of the key ideas that the Germans had, which was to take the war to the British on as many fronts as possible. And indeed, one of the most, you know, endlessly comes in the top 10 of Britain's greatest films ever made, Lawrence of Arabia. Now, who really thinks of that as a First World War film? Well, they don't because it's a brilliant film and its story is completely, you know, has total integrity and is a wonderfully told story. But it is, of course, a First World War film about fighting the Turks and the Arabs in Jordan and Palestine and in that area and down into Saudi Arabia. So I'm really proud that we've, we've gone, we've gone round the world a bit more than you might, you know, might immediately think.
3: That was Jonathan Ruffle. Tommy's is broadcast today, the 30th of June, on BBC Radio 4 at 2.15pm and will be available on BBC iPlayer after that, along with a number of other recent episodes. You can also purchase audio CDs of Tommy's at Amazon and other retailers. You can find out lots more about the series and Jonathan Ruffle at his website, which can be found at gbfilms.com. Well, that's pretty much it for this episode, but do listen in next week when we'll be talking about the early years of the Second World War. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.